Welcome, one and all, to This Week in Mormons! What a fabulous week it is. What a wonderful time to be alive, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jeff Openshaw, your founder, your co-host, your, your rock, the most dependable person in your life. I will never leave you. I will never hurt you. I will never let you down in any capacity whatsoever, unless you ask me who I'm voting for, many of you. But <laughs> other than that... I will never do such my a thing. My hero, my hero. And, and I am Devin's hero. Devin Thorpe is here, everybody, running for Congress. How are you doing, Devin? It's good to be back, Jeff. Thank you very much for having it, me. It's a pleasure to have you. You've been kind of busy. I don't know if we've had you since like early June, maybe. At it has been a while. It's been a yeah. little bit of a while. Uh, You've been a tough one to pin down, my friend. Yeah. That's just how it goes. That's how the, that's how the sausage gets made, as they yeah. say. Um, well, how are things in the Beehive State? How's the campaign going? Uh, for new listeners, Devin is running for the third district of Utah. And uh, as you've been doing it for a couple of months. What's no, going on with that? It's been how, almost how, six months now since. Has it really been? Yeah, long? it's been almost. It's been, you know, since I decided to run, uh, it's been five and a half months since I declared it has been five months. It's been, you know, this is, of we're course. more than halfway through the campaign. Yeah, um, of course. I forget that with COVID's been such a blur. I forget COVID's been like five months since we all shut down. Practically, yeah, isn't it so, crazy? Yeah. So okay, that makes sense. So anyway, so how's that going? Any new lessons learned? Any cool experiences on the trail with all the people you can't shake hands with? I I learn stuff every day. Of course, I'm a first time candidate, so you know, there every day brings new things. Um, but one of the things I enjoy the most is calling people and asking them for money. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually good because a lot of politicians hate that part yeah. of it. So I'm glad. No, it, it's amazing the people I get to talk to, you know, yeah. interesting, passionate, great people. Uh, and so that's really a joy, just really a joy. Um, you know, it's not all uh, peaches and cream, but, you know, it really is cool at the end of the day to look back and at the number at the people we talk to, and it, it's great. So, so if you get elected, um, you're not going to mind when you have to leave the office buildings and go over to some D triple C facility and just call people for half your day for money. That's not going to bother you. That uh, that is not going to be new. That is not going to be tough. That is going to be routine. And I, trust me. Do I think that's how politics should work? Absolutely not. Um, I think we need campaign finance reform uh, more than anyone else. But um, I really do enjoy talking to people, and uh, people are great. The people are great, and you know I love people in my district. I I, I spend uh, you know as much time as I can talking to people in the district, uh, and uh, we're working on kind of a a little bit of a fun stunt here in, in two weeks, we're going to go. Are you going to jump the Grand Canyon in a motorcycle? Oh no, sorry. In your ex- Nissan Leaf? Exactly. And I'm yeah. Gonna take, uh, yeah. No, I no. You know, it's funny that you say that that's not what we're going to do Man. Uh, as it turns out. Um, I'm going to visit 36 cities in the district in 36 hours and do a Facebook live from each since I can't really glad hand with people in person. I will go to their city and then talk to them on the internet. That sounds interesting. Now it'll be fun. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm jealous in a way. The the third district is fascinating because of course it, you know, you've got some of the populated parts of uh, Salt Lake County and down through Provo and all that. And then it's just, you know, price and Moab. I think all that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it is, it is just, wildly different communities. There are seven different counties in the district and they are all completely different. And you're, and you're, you go all the way down to Blanding and Montezuma mm-hmm. Creek and all yeah. that, right? Like all, all that, the way down all to four corners. And so we've got uh, Utah's Navajo nation. Uh, we've got San Juan. We've got, uh, you know, of course, Grand County, the Moab area, the national parks, we've got Emory County and, uh, Emory County is an amazing place that no one ever visits. <laughs> they just drive through it. And I tell you, everybody's got to stop uh, and, and visit Emory County. It's an amazing place. Uh, Carbon makes, County is- What makes Emory County so amazing? I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. So Emory Talk County, like Emory, there, there's almost nothing on the map in Emory County. And yet it is some of the most beautiful, they call it castle country. Uh, 
but it, it's really some spectacular landscapes if you get off the beaten path. Mm. If you take the road from Salt Lake to Moab and you drive through the middle of of Emory County, you don't appreciate all the good places. All the good places are off that path. When you get off that path and you start visiting all the little towns and you visit the San Rafael Swell and the uh, and the mountains there, I mean, there are just some amazing things to see. So it it really is cool down there in Emory wow. County. Emory County, um, I am guaranteed to lose. Uh, it is the, <laughs> it is the most Republican county in the district, more Republican than Utah County. Well, that's probably fine because, I mean, you're in love with all the natural features and the mountains can't vote for you. So that's right. Well, I love the people You've said too. nothing. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. They, they have some, they, they have a very active, progressive uh, community there. It's very small, however, uh, but it, it was cool. I visited with them a week or two ago, uh, but it's, yeah, it's an amazing, beautiful place. People should you know, if you wanted to spend a week in Emory County, not only could you do it, you could do it and never be bored for a minute. Uh, everybody, last week, of course, was Pioneer Day. We're only a few days removed from Pioneer Day, which to me doesn't usually mean a ton. But I appreciate that this time the church is doing more and more, especially in the Nelson era, to preach the international messaging of Pioneer Day and not in the sense of like, let's watch these saints in Japan go on trek, which they can't do this year anyway, you know, because of COVID, but to actually celebrate the pioneers for what they are in their respective countries, which I really appreciate because for years I've watched Pioneer Day coverage and I've been like, guys, I, I hate to say this, but like, this just... I'm not knocking Utah for the heritage of Utah, but it's just, it's not the same. Like just celebrate people for who they were in their countries or wherever they're from uh, with respect to the church. So we saw a little bit of this. Uh, Elder Suarez has a message or had a message uh, from last week about, you know, the the pioneers in internationally and modern day pioneers, especially, you know, see Elder Suarez, by the way, in case you don't remember, is from Brazil. He's a Brazilian member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which is super cool. Uh, He was baptized when he was eight, but his parents uh, joined the church when he was around five. And so he has this great message that he shares uh, just in the church news about just essentially like what are the great blessings from pioneers? I mean, look at him. He looks at himself and he's essentially a second generation member of the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, And here he's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which is just terrific. And he recognizes all the incredible pioneers throughout all the world. He tells stories about some of the first people baptized in Brazil, uh, when the first stakes were organized in Brazil and Sao Paulo, when the first regional conference happened. If you remember in Brazil, a big deal in Brazil was President Kimball announced the Sao Paulo Temple in 1975, which is three years before the priesthood ban was lifted. And we believe in Revelation and all of that, but most historians would argue that a Brazil is a big driver behind mm-hmm. revisiting the priesthood rules for a long mm-hmm. time because the rules at the time were, I mean, you could be a, a very small percentage black mm-hmm. and you'd be ruled out from mm-hmm. priesthood in the temple, right? But the problem, and that might be more cut and dry a little bit somewhere like the United States, but you had these countries like South Africa, which has people who are called colored, which does not mean black. It means a totally different thing there. Um, right. And then people in Brazil who are of very, very mixed ethnicity. It's much more common there. And the church was facing issues like, well, what do we do in this case? Yeah. In Brazil, we can't, we can't have, we, it's going to be so hard to try to enforce some kind of a rule like that. So that was, yeah. that was a bit of a, of a digression, but he's got all these cool stories about Brazil, modern day pioneers around the globe and terrific footage of him walking around the rooftop gardens of the conference center, which reminded me that once upon a time that was supposed to be a public park. And uh, that did not happen very quickly. Didn't some kid fall down like like within a week of it opening? And ever since then, it's just been open for tours only. I don't, yeah, you're the one. Yeah, you're I the public person. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of what happened. That's kind of what happened. Which that makes bad. me sad because if you go on a tour of the top of the conference center, you could see how it would be a lovely place to be an open oh plaza. Gosh, yeah, it's spectacular for, for the public. Yeah, it's beautiful. So that's one of many Pioneer Day related uh, things. But I appreciated the uh, way we try to honor the pioneers. Yeah. Well, and um, I think it's, 
let's see, let me grab this other story. But we, you know, one of the things that came up was this discussion of Pioneer Day in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, okay. you know, that's kind of a, an interesting uh, discussion, you know, uh, well worth the uh, taking a minute on that. But um, Tell me more. I'm here for you. Tell well, you know, more. it's been interesting for me to see that there has been a big shift in the way I perceive people in Utah perceiving the Black Lives Matter movement since George Floyd's murder in, in May. Um, it, for a long time, uh, moderates in Utah... Um, so many, kind of in the middle, would uh, try to retort to a Black Lives Matter post with All Lives Matter in, in the most loving, kind way they could. And yet that's always frustrated uh, people in the Black Lives Matter movement because yeah. it fails to acknowledge that some people act like they don't, right? Uh, if, if All Lives Matter, why are... Uh, African-Americans twice as likely to die at the hands of the police. Uh, and so there's got to be something there. And so, but what I've seen since the, the uh, George Floyd death, his murder was we have seen moderates in Utah start to make black lives matter posts on, on social media. So I'm using that as a gauge. Uh, and also we've seen them protest Right, so we've seen massive protests uh, in downtown Salt Lake, and we've seen smaller protests in other cities, in Heber, in Provo, in Moab. Uh, so it's no longer just, you know, the people in the big cities. This is really spreading, and I think uh, many people in Utah are ready to say, "Yeah, there's something." wrong with the system and we need to talk about systemic racism in a more thoughtful way to make sure that we truly purge it. Um, I think people in Utah are, by and large, not just not racists. We are becoming anti-racists. Um, and I think that is a wonderful measure of, of progress uh, in Utah and in the church especially when you consider that you go back only a little more than 40 years and uh, you couldn't say that. So it's very exciting to me. Great to see that progress. Yeah. It reminds us that it's not enough that, that to be, like you said, you know, involved in this process requires proactive moves. It's very easy to be passive about this, just to recognize that there are issues, to recognize that things need to change. But then like, what are we doing to combat it? What are, how are we actually taking this head on? And I like that you're saying that you you see people in Utah, largely you know LDS, who are doing that, who are not who are not just having those discussions, but who are actually trying to take action in order to go after racism. I mean, Jana Reese here argues that we're in steps what two and three of this chart she has mm -hmm. of how we uh, how we deal with that. So there's exclusive, passive, symbolic change, identity change, and structural change. So we're somewhere between being passive and making symbolic moves. So an example of passive would be not publicly refuting or apologizing for racist statements of past members or arguing that the ban was only a priesthood ban, for example, was only a policy, not a doctrine. Symbolic change would be the church emphasizing that the church should be one without acknowledging racism. Or another example is beginning to have some non-white members of the 70 who will be the public face of the claim that racism is not or should not be a problem. Um, I think we have seen a lot of messaging from the church yeah, in recent yeah, months, I, in particular, focusing on embracing more of the the racial diversity within our ranks. I'm glad she raises this. And, and clearly, my thoughts are more on the cultural things I'm seeing among members of the church and Utahns broadly, and I realize those are not synonymous, uh, right. of course. Um, but but what I'm, I would say we're more in the three four range using her scale, using her her lens. I would say we're we've made more progress than she sees, and I don't mean to suggest that we don't have a lot of progress left to make. Of course we do, uh, and there are still 
racists in Utah. It would be absurd to say otherwise. But what I'm right. talking about is that, you know, the people in the in the middle, right? You know, we of course there are people on the left or or people who are passionate about race issues. And there have been for generations, right? We we didn't invent them recently. Uh, but now what we've seen is this move to, by people at the in the center who are really saying, okay, I, I, I buy into this uh, 100%. And now, you know, how do we move from symbolic to real action to the structural change? There's a lot of work left to do. Um, but I'll tell you, there's a Black Lives Matter uh, group in, in Moab. I don't know how many Mormons are in it, frankly, <laughs> maybe none. Uh, but they're really working on structural change aspects of it. And it was fun to see this rural Utah community come together and say, let's talk about what are the structural changes we need to make in our community. And and I think the church is going to get there too. Um, uh, and and the church has spoken out in, in strongest possible terms against racism. What they haven't done yet is to look at its history and reconcile the history of the church with its unequivocal anti-racism position today. And we, we saw that with the NAACP meetings a couple of, what was it, four or six weeks ago, uh, the official statement that was put out by the NAACP and the church was all hunky dory, but then the NAACP president made a, a follow on statement that called on the church to do more. And, uh, you know, I think that's where we are. Uh, th- there's more to do, but the church is, I think, working really hard and has certainly done, in my opinion, the church has been ex- unequivocal and explicit. There is no room for racism in the church. I do not envy the thinkers and movers uh, in the upper echelons of church leadership, you know, dealing with how we move past racism basically without formally apologizing for it because I, I totally see how they're in a bind. Like, how would you apologize for past? How would you essentially just say, yeah, Brigham Young was pretty wrong about all this. And I know they've tried to dance around it a bit, you know, talking about being a policy, not a doctrine. The gospel topics essays are nice and a good jumping off point mm-hmm. in a lot of areas, but it's a difficult dance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I don't have all the answers, but because if the second you say this was wrong, then all of a sudden you have everyone else saying, oh, well, the church just admitted it's not led by prophets. Like that's going to be a headline essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. On, on no, top it's, of it's, it, it's a very difficult discussion for the church in part because we have emphasized without ever using the word, the infallibility of our leaders. And uh, I don't think even Joseph Smith, as he was writing some of the revelations we rely on for that doctrine, I, I don't think he meant that. Uh, and there were certainly plenty of people who challenged Joseph Smith in his day. So, oh, for sure. Well, and even I mean, you know, uh, President then President Uchtdorf gave a talk about all that, like how we should not expect these perfect, yeah, infallible leaders. But it's understandably difficult for us to think about them any other way because it's easy to say you're a man called of God to be a prophet, so like everything you do is correct. Mm-hmm. Why? Or else, why would you be in that role? And it's always a good reminder that the Lord calls people who are worthy, not people who are perfect or excel in every capacity. You know, was it in Rough Stone Rolling where uh, Richard Bushman points out that many of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants come about because Joseph Smith was racked by guilt and went to the Lord seeking forgiveness? And uh, it was in that context that he had some of these great spiritual experiences. And and um, we focus on the great spiritual experiences without remembering that uh, oftentimes uh, the first words of, uh, uh, you know, of the revelation are something to do with, you know, your sins are forgiven or, you know, we understand it's, it's all cool. Let's keep moving forward. And yeah, it's, we just have to, I think, remember Which that. Which is a beautiful parallel with the Savior when we think about that. I mean, think about the times in the New Testament when the the Lord forgives sins. These are people who are sick 
or, you know, there's sick and afflicted looking for healing, various things. And instead he says, like, you know, your sins are forgiven, even if that's not mm-hmm. what they're looking for. Yeah. That's yeah. Like, right. Like, you know, yeah. you think like, no, buddy, I'm looking to like, uh, I want to walk again. I, I'm mixing up all my examples, right? Yeah. But yes. I, I want to walk again. And it's like, cool. I want to see, or I want to. Your sins are cool. Your sins are forgiven. And you're like, well, that's, thank you. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. But that's but that is a good reminder of the way the Lord talks to us a lot of the time. He did the same thing with Joseph Smith. I appreciate that. Yeah, that um, a big so, part of Revelation is seeking worthiness before God. I think. Yeah. So anyway, you're right. The the church has to is not in an easy situation. Uh, we have emphasized for a long time that prophets won't lead the church astray, uh, and it's hard to describe how we ended up with the priesthood ban if somebody didn't lead the church astray. Exactly. And uh, so that is a difficult, a difficult dilemma for uh, current leaders to, to deal with. But I, I think, you know, there's in, in my mind, little question that the statements that the church has made puts us in the identity change area squarely or symbolic change to identity change. We're not in the passive to symbolic change range so much. Anyway, I, I think we're in a three, four range and we've got to get to five. And anyway, so it's, we'll it's good. There. We've got to, we've got to focus on that in, in our communities as well. We, uh, not just in the church. And in fact, more so in our communities, the church is a little bit out of our hands. The church isn't going to take a vote, isn't going to take a poll to see how to move forward on these things, but there are votes, uh, there are polls uh, in our communities, and and we all ought to be looking at what are the um, racist uh, things that exist in our policies, our procedures, our policing that we should be thinking about changing. And you know, one of the great sort of Mormony uh, examples I'll use of this is there's kind of this apocryphal story of a young woman, newly wed. And she's making her pot roast and for the first time and her husband's watching her and she cuts the end off the pot roast and puts it in the pot. And he says, why did he cut the end off? And she said, well, I don't know. My mom just taught me to do it that way. And so she calls her mom, mom, why do you do it that way? And she said, I don't know. My mom just taught me to do this. So they call grandma, who's now quite an old woman. Grandma, why do you cut the end off the, the pot roast? Oh, she said, well, that's easy. It doesn't fit in the pot if I don't cut it off. It had nothing to do with the recipe. It was the size yeah. of the pot, right? And and a lot of our policing practices were established, you know, a hundred years, two hundred years ago, right? So some of them were established at a time when the police were in the business of chasing uh, runaway slaves. Some of them were uh, established in era when we were trying to um, uh, enforce Jim Crow laws. Um, and some, uh, were created 25 years ago in what we can now objectively see were at least implicitly racist rules of the crime bill that was passed in the nineties. Um, and you know, like you can see that the huge disparity that we recognized even at the time between crack cocaine and powdered cocaine, right. And it's hard to, really to describe that as anything but racist because blacks tend to use crack and white people tend to use powder cocaine. I mean, it's just explicitly, almost explicitly racist. And those kinds of things are baked into our laws and into our policing procedures. And we just need to be reflective. We need to be thoughtful about, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go back. If we were starting from scratch, what would we do? How would we do this? in a way to, to, to avoid any difference in outcomes among people of different, you know, I call them races. That's not even a fair or accurate term, but different people of different ethnicities, different skin color, et cetera. So anyway, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Sorry. Well, uh, no, no, no. So, so jumping on Utah a little bit more, you won't believe who wanted to wish Utahns a happy Pioneer Day and Latter-day Saints a happy Pioneer Day. You won't even believe it. You know who it was? It was Donald Trump Jr. 
Yes, the president's son on a call wished everyone a happy Pioneer Day. To his credit, he refers to the members as Latter-day Saints. The word Mormon, I don't think it's dropped anywhere in terms of a quote, which, I mean, I'll give credit to the administration for someone being savvy enough to say they don't like to be called Mormons anymore. I'm just saying that's not bad. Not, not, not badly done, Donald Trump Jr. Um, it was on a call. He called them out. He even says, I don't think Utah is actually a concern of whether we're going to win it or not. But it's clear that the campaign wants to reach out to Latter-day Saints nationally in general and showing them that you honor Pioneer Day and speak of all the wonderful pioneers who, quote, embody the innovative spirit, curiosity, and optimism that is uniquely American um, will be appealing to the Latter-day Saint community. I mean, I hate to reduce this to politics, but Trump won Utah with 45% of the vote and usually Republicans win Utah with like 85% of the vote. So, you know, there's, yeah. there, that, that's a part of it here. It's outreach. I mean, they wouldn't be bothering to say these things. I hate to be cynical, but they would not be bothering to do this normally because um, Utah doesn't typically get much action in terms of presidential elections because it is a foregone conclusion which way it's going to vote. Many states are that way. It's a minority of states that are swing states, so that's fine. Yeah, But, but um, I think Utah is in play this year. You do think that. I don't know if I'm with you, but yeah. yeah. I, know, I, I understand the skepticism, but uh, I, I have done a little of my own polling in addition to reading public polls. Oh, and it's, oh. it's clear to me, it's clear to me that, that the um, Utahns are more divided on this, this time than last time. Right. Uh, and so I think uh you know, last time we had a third party player, Evan McMillan in the race, and he took that middle swath or a big chunk of the middle swath well, he the, of he voters. Took a moderate Republican. Yeah. And and those moderates have to go somewhere else this time. They either have to get on board the Trump train or they're going to go with Joe Biden. And uh, I think some of them are going to put on the aviators. So we'll see. But, <laughs> yeah, we'll I see. Think they will. What, I think they what, will. What, one more interesting thing on this is that they're trying to play the religious liberty card. This seems to be a new area for the presidential campaign in general. And it's going to be interesting to me to see whether essentially pandering to the idea of religious liberty has a political effect or not. Um, but a lot of his remarks stood about this, like we're just going to protect religious liberties for everybody. How much do Latter-day Saints in Utah care about somebody having their back like that? It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. So happy Pioneer Day from the Trump administration to you. It's not enough that you got a, a special COVID check this year with the president's signature. Now his son wants to wish you a happy yes. Pioneer Day, everybody. It is cool that John just like Jr. A- comes to Utah regularly. And uh, you know, I think it is going to elevate Utah's presence on the campaign trail. There's a vice presidential debate here later in the year. And uh, Is that, that's the know, only one though, right? I mean, they usually only do one. Yeah, I think that'll and be the only new, I didn't realize that, So it's I didn't a big deal. The vice presidential debate being in Utah is definitely a big deal. And, uh, you know, I'm in touch with the, the Biden campaign uh, and he says I, you know, they're absolutely. trying to get Biden or, or uh, his wife to come to Utah and, you know, the more Don Jr. Uh, comes, the more likely that is. So I, I hope Don Jr. will keep coming. So you could all be a ploy because then Biden has to come to Utah. Yeah. Instead of spending his time in a more competitive state like Arizona or Georgia or somewhere else. Woohoo. Anyways, good time. Uh, I'm going to do a quick little some mid-show mentions here for all y'all. Uh, a very touching story, not explicitly Latter-day Saint, just that it involves Latter-day Saints, but a six-year-old son went viral, his story went viral rather, um, for saving his sister's life. So his sister was attacked by a dog and he jumped in to save his sister's life. This kid's a little hero though. I mean, he straight up said like, basically if someone was going to die, it's not going to be hurt. Like if someone had to die, I thought it should be me, which is a pretty touching thing for a kid that age to even be thinking is, about. And he's cites- sweet. That is as cute as can be. Well, and he cites, I mean, this kid like understands scripture well and his family's clearly raised him to have a good selfless uh, head on his shoulders. And uh, I mean, he, he's, he got, you know, he got mauled up. He's got he some did. He, he, things and uh, 
it, yeah. no messing around. He probably thought during that encounter with that dog that he was going to die. Because uh, he, he's pretty messed up. I know if I were six and I came out of something looking the way he does, I would for sure have thought I was going to die. Yeah, big time. And it's a reminder to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. So I think that's a great uplifting story that you can share around uh, with all your friends and loved ones from everywhere else. Uh, another touching story that I'd like, this one, not a ton of discussion we can have about it, but I definitely want you to give it a read if you get a chance. We'll link to it with the show notes. BYU Magazine has an article about Lisa Valentine Clark, who you might remember has been on the show twice, once uh, for Once I Was a Beehive, which is now Once I Was a 12 and 13-year-old Young Woman, and uh, also for Show Offs, the improv show she does with Haley and some others. We had them on last uh, November, I want to say, or December to talk about Show Offs. So this is a profile of Lisa and her husband, Chris. Um, and uh, Chris Clark was suffering from ALS. He actually passed away in early June, right when this article was going to press. But this talks about their relationship, how they they actually did the interviews and wrote most of the article before he finally passed away. But it's a great uplifting piece, essentially about their courtship, their life together. Uh, Chris was a noted playwright in the Utah theatrical community and theater community, right? would be the better way to say that, I suppose. And... Uh, I just like to see this. It's hard to have perspective. I often, I've wondered many times, like, how would I react if I met major tragedy, like major hardship in my life or my family's life? And how do you deal with that? Yeah. And I am forever impressed with those who take those difficult situations and just say, yeah, this is a hurdle, but it's not going to stop me. And it's not going to stop my family. And it's not going to stop us doing the things we love to do and letting us grow with our careers and passions. Um, this is great. If you get BYU Magazine, you know, if you're an alumnus, of course, you'll see this in the issue. But uh, this is well worth a read. It's a long read, too. But for me, just there's just good stuff here. I love seeing good people with good attitudes. Um, you know, even though it's unfortunate that uh, Chris has since passed yeah. on. But uh, there's a lot of good that we can take from this. That's the important thing. Yeah, I I probably can't comment on this without getting choked up. So I won't. But uh, it's, you, Great you can, you can comment if you, you can get choked up, Devin. It's All okay. Right. That's, it is a beautiful, beautiful story. Very well yeah. worth the read. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, tell us about something that will not choke you up then, Devin. Okay. Well, let's talk about, um, this article on living the law of chastity while gay. Hmm. Um, okay. You know, this I, is in the end. In the end this is straight out of the end sign. Okay. Um, you know, I have unlimited uh, respect and ad for, admiration for uh, LGBTQ members of the church who uh, honor their temple covenants. Um, I know it's extremely difficult uh, for many, uh, and I just really admire those who are willing uh, to make the sacrifices. And it was interesting to read the article and see the uh, expression of, of uh, faith that um, the author of the article, uh, who is sort of anonymized in the article, but uh, um, says he's, uh, he was raised or born into a Hasidic Jewish family and uh, but he said, as long as he can remember, he knew he was gay as well as Jewish. And uh, but encountered the church in in New York, and then joined the church when he was living in England. If I got the story right in my mind, and uh, yeah. uh, is now uh, a recommend holding member of the church. And uh, but it's it's also interesting. He highlights uh, his faith that uh, the Lord hasn't revealed all things. And he he spins this as a personal reaction hmm. um, that the Lord hasn't yet revealed to him why he would be gay if 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 he can't live that lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also true uh, that um, the church doesn't know everything yet, and we sometimes. <gasps> 
I try to act as if the church is complete when one of our central doctrinal tenets is that many, you know, important things, important things, let me emphasize important, great and important things have yet to be revealed. So there, there, there's more we'll learn. Um, and uh, so anyway, I thought, it, you know, his example is is inspiring uh, and I'm grateful for his example of faith because, you know, the, the, the road I walk isn't nearly as difficult in many ways. And uh, so I'm inspired by the faithfulness of others. And I'm impressed. I'm glad the church also ran this. This isn't just some article in a random blog like This Week in Mormons or something else. This is this is the end sign. This is the church embracing. Yeah. Good for the church. Also, somewhat in the same vein, so Tyler Glenn, we haven't talked about for a while, the front man of Neon Trees. Uh, you might remember Tyler was a, well, I guess was a Latter-day Saint. We could say that now. Had been for a long time. Um, was still involved in the church, I think, during some of Neon Trees' earliest hits, but eventually kind of came, things kind of came to a head. He felt like he couldn't do both, more or less. He came out as gay, and he released a solo album. Um, that was pretty mad at the church. His solo album was called Excommunication. And a lot mm-hmm. of it was about his coming out experience, his decision to leave the church. Uh, if you remember, we talked about it years ago. I mean, there was a music video where on the wall behind him while he's singing the song, he, uh, there's a picture of Joseph Smith, like with the eyes blacked out and all kinds of things like that. It's pretty on the nose. So now he's got Neon Trees is back out. Excuse me, I got a cough again. Yeah, it's all right. So yeah, it, 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 Tyler had a an interesting, challenging coming out experience. But you know, I, for my part, I would I would just insert into this discussion that I have great respect for him and each person who uh, you know is gay in the church has their own experience and uh, coming out uh, and leaving the church is is a path that is a, a legitimate and understanding an understandable path in my mind. It's tough. I mean, I don't like you want people to stay, stay here, be help, you know, be a part of this, like help us be better than if we need to. But I, like, like you said, you can also understand why people feel there's nowhere else for them to go necessarily. Uh, anyway, this is a profile uh, in Yahoo entertainment Q and a kind of thing. You can read about it. If you want, talks a lot about his journey out of the church. He says that leaving the church was harder for him than coming out as gay, which I thought was kind of interesting. Well, in that same sort of pop culture, uh, sense, let's talk a little bit about the book of Mormon musical, which I am not an authority on having never even seen it. I've never listened to the music. I'm embarrassed in a way that I haven't experienced that. <laughs> I never listened to Hamilton until like three weeks ago when it was on Disney plus, And now I love the soundtrack. So don't yeah, go back. I, I, I did do, I, I got the soundtrack to Hamilton and sort of memorized the whole dang thing. I listened to it so many times, just loved it, but I had never seen the play until it was on Disney. Uh, it was a little bit of a letdown. But really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I because uh, I knew all the music uh, and kind of knew the story. I'd read the book, I'd listened to the music, and yeah, you know, so it's just people singing the songs and dancing around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what a musical is. You know, yeah, they just yeah. do it for real. Yeah, so um, it's the kind of thing I think you either have to uh, dramatize in the form of a movie, uh, which can involve singing, or you have to uh, see the the stage play, the the musical, the stage play in in a theater live, uh, and so the the Disney production was sort of uh, just a a compromise, and it was nice, you know. All right, hater, move on to the Book of Mormon. Okay, so the Book of Mormon, yeah. So uh, it is interesting that um, Josh Gad was saying that he thinks that if they do a Book of Mormon musical movie, they have to change it and update it uh, because it's uh, sufficiently racist that even though it is only, what, seven or eight years old, maybe nine, um, that it hasn't aged real well. It uh, th- There are implicit um, well, insults of- uh, uh, toward Africans yeah. that, that just don't stand the test of time. The, the butt of the joke was to be 
the Mormons, not the Africans. And yet that part of it hasn't aged well. I think that's interesting. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, I haven't seen the musical either, but I'm aware of a lot of its content. And we've and things have changed a lot in the past few years. I mean, first we had Me Too, which wouldn't necessarily have affected this, but um, it's pretty funny when I read about the way the uh, people. I believe there's it's supposed to take place in. I think it's actually Uganda, takes place right? in Uganda. It is Uganda. I didn't think it was like some fabricated African country. It was actually uh, Uganda. But um, yeah, and I've been to Uganda. Uganda is a great country. Well, you're fa- you're fancy. Good for you, Kampala man. Yeah. That's where the action is. Yeah. Love yeah. those traffic jams. <laughs> no, They're having the, a good time. Great, great country. Great people. Uh, Listeners, you know I love technology. Following the church's work on tech products, developers, all those sorts of things, it's just a little interest area of mine. I think it's fun to watch. I love hearing about what they're doing. I follow the LDS tech like channels and things like that. Uh, so here's a cool new thing that's come out that might be of use to you. Uh, Gospel Voice, quote unquote, brings church content to Amazon and Google smart speakers. Now, I'm, since I'm not an Amazon user, I'm not as familiar with how this has been, but I know that in the Gospel Library app, you've been able to Google cast content uh, for years. Right, so if you want to listen to scriptures or listen to saints or something like that, you know the book, the the anthology series, um, you could cast it to your whatever to your Chromecast if you have a Google Home device, whatever you want. Now, but the Gospel Voice app is essentially a skill, sort of speak. So you can on Alexa, you can say enable Gospel Voice, or you can say Hey Google, talk to Gospel Voice, kind of like how you'd have it talk to some other third party app that can interface with it through the API. And so through this now, you can actually ask it once you talk to it to read scripture uh, by chapter. They said they'll uh, make it available by specific verses later in the year. So sorry if you really wanted to get to like, you know, verse 58 in one of those Alma chapters, everybody. You're going to have to wait a little while to get to it. Um, You can choose a female or a male voice. Uh, You can just use phrases like, hey, Google, ask the gospel voice to read 1 Nephi chapter 1. This also covers the hymns, the children's songbook, youth music, uh, general conference, which is kind of nice. You can simply say, Alexa, ask Gospel Voice to play the latest talk by President Nelson. Now, I don't know if that means the latest talk. Will that quite truly like give the Sunday morning speech and and just go right over the priesthood session talk because that happened the night before? I'm assuming it's that smart. Yeah. But um you can do Come Follow Me curriculum if you want to have it, just have it read this week's lesson, if that helps you. The Latter-day Saints channel, you can read Saints, all those sorts of things. So now instead of just having to cast it over, a lot of those, almost anything that you could do audibly in the Gospel Library app, uh, you can effectively talk to your smart device and have it read it to you. I that fiddled with cool. It, it's cool. I fiddled with it a few days ago and it was extremely robotic. I believe they should have... Um, Al, the tattooed Mormon, record everything for the female voice, because why not? Mm -hmm. Because right now it's like, hello, how can I help you? It's not exactly natural, but I think they'll work into that better. So I'm cool with this. Good work here. I don't know how much daily use I'm going to get out of it or anything, but uh, I'm glad it's here for the people who find great use in it. Good job developing things, church. Well played. That's cool. That really is cool. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, I would love to chat about, uh, speaking of sort of some of the things going on in the church this week, is um, Peggy Fletcher Stack over at the Salt Lake Tribune wrote an interesting piece about uh, end of days. And it it is an interesting thing because the church's very name uh, implies that we are in the latter days or the last days, and therefore uh, we are believers in, uh, you know, all that comes with that. Um, uh, but, First of all, hold on, Devin. Yeah. What's up with the graphic on this article? This this header image is very weird to me. It shows the earth uh, with what appear to be just massive explosions or the earth is cracking open, I guess cracking open or something like that. 
First of all, it seems that Europe has been subsumed into the ocean somehow already. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just barely there. But it looks like a lot of places are being destroyed. Sudan, uh, India. There's a really big explosion over where China is. I don't know what the illustrator Christopher Charrington is trying to say, but China is clearly blowing up the most. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Conspicuously absent here is that Saudi Arabia seems to be and getting off just scot free, just fine. There's a crack in the earth's in the earth that seems to even follow the border between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. I think there he's trying this this Christopher Charrington's trying to say something. Yeah. I don't know what it is. But I feel like he's saying something here. Notice how he didn't dare yeah. show North America blowing up. He's attacking uh, everybody. I, I don't know. I think, I don't know. I, I think, I think North America is just gone. <laughs> if you turn the earth around, that part is. Yeah. I, I, well, I think you could see it if it weren't gone. Uh, but I don't know. The Africa seems a little bit too big in this map. So it's, it's. It's a it's a globe, Devin. I mean, that's the size of that. That is a that is a point. That is a it is a globe. Yeah, it is uh, an image, not, a rendering not, of a globe. Not, there's no Mercator issue here. Yeah. It's a globe. Anywho, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. I just enjoy the it's illustration. Right. It clearly no, has it in so, the Far East. So continue. You know what I had not picked up on until I read this article is that those the uh, Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow uh, that uh, killed Utah, the kids. Uh, the Idaho people? The Idaho people who killed their two kids are allegedly. Uh, they are preppers who uh, believed that the world was going to end like last week. No way. I knew they were preppers, but I didn't, they, they yeah, had a they, date. They had been Dude. preaching and teaching that the world was going to end last week. And uh, apparently it didn't. Uh, if it did, uh, the Tribune did not cover it. <laughs> And uh, it happened without us noti- noticing, apparently. Um, and so it goes into kind of a discussion about Mormon preppers and the, the nature of prophecy. And it, it kind of goes down a rabbit hole in, in, in a way. Uh, no criticism intended, Peggy. You're always very thoughtful. Um, You're the greatest. Peggy. But the but I uh, w- was really caught off guard by uh, these two murderers basically being uh, alleged murderers. Alleged murderers. Yeah. Come on, Congress. You got to l- learn that word, Devin. Yeah. Alleged. I got to be more politic. Huh? Alleged. Uh, alleged. So anyway, where the uh, alleged uh, alleged murderers are uh, are you know end of days wackos. Prepping is fascinating to me. I mean, I started taking it a little bit more seriously with COVID, not in a crazy way, but more just in a sense where we said, okay, we're not great on our food storage. We might as well just get ramped up now when it was kind of the weeks before stuff really hit the fan with COVID. We figured we'd just stock up on some supplies in general for what was coming. But uh, but the hardcore prepper thing just blows my mind. Uh, I think even wasn't... Uh, What's her face? Tara Westover. I mean, her family were doomsday people too. The, oh, yeah. the, the woman who wrote uh, yeah. Educated, which is one Educated, of the most fa- yeah. one of the better books I read last year. Um, Fabulous book. I, I have the mindset that also in Idaho, no less, along with the Daybells. So something's going on in Idaho. Yeah. Uh, well, the article kind of hints at that too, right? There are these communities where geographically they get kind of caught up in this discussion. Uh, a charismatic leader within the church starts talking about these ideas and their personal prophecies, their personal revelations. And, and pretty soon you've got members of the church with a following or maybe a best-selling book or a newsletter and, and people are, you know, subscribing to their ideas. Yeah. It's weird stuff. I don't get it, but good on everyone who does, I guess. (laughs) Um, some lovely news that we somehow, I think missed. I actually know this dropped after last week's show. So the perpetual education fund has paused loan repayments during COVID-19. The article actually says loan payments, which I think does make it a little confusing as if the fund itself is paying someone else. But what they're saying to ease the financial burden of the 98,000 students in 75 countries who benefit from the perpetual education fund. Um, they're having loan payments deferred with no interest uh, until since May, 2020, 
May 1st, 2020. Uh, it should be paused until November of 2020. That could obviously change. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't change because it means things are actually settling down. But uh, I think it's great the church is doing this, you know, in, in a world where there are many people have been asking, why can't we have rent relief or this or that? I'm glad the church is doing what it can within what it can control to say, you can pause your repayments from perpetual education fund. Uh, it, what remains to be seen is whether the church is like going to let the tenants of luxury apartments in City Creek or Philadelphia also defer their rent because they own it. I don't think that's going to happen. But anyway, perpetual education fund is it's good for them. If you need a reminder, this was a fund established by President Gordon B. Hinckley. I want to say around what it was a while ago. Dem, when, when did you do that? Two thousand, two thousand, maybe. Yes, it was about that time give or take a year. The idea was to create a more uh, useful, it was a, uh, 2001, there we go, March 31st, 2001. Uh, the point was to provide educational opportunity, not welfare support, but better educational opportunity to members of the church and others uh, who live in areas of widespread poverty. So the idea was to provide a better leg up through student loans, essentially, more or less, but uh, ones that work better for the developing world so that they can better themselves and be contribute more to society and to the yeah. gospel and help others do the same. So I, I loved that program, but I don't think it really operates anymore. I don't think they're doing any new lending under that program, are they? Well, it's, I mean, it said they had, we had, what did they say, you know, almost a hundred thousand students under the loans. So I don't know yeah. if it's only existing ones or if they're I th- stopping I for a while. I'm not sure. Maybe I misunderstood, but th- th- I know they haven't asked us to donate to it in years. Initially that True. was because they, didn't need it. And I think subsequently they kind of suspended the, the program. Well, they Well, maybe it got to perpetuity. Maybe they had enough donations and rep- repayments were now it's self-sustaining. I don't yeah. know, but I'm glad they're doing this. It's great that they're- Oh yeah. And, and yeah, relief. Yeah. That's totally appropriate. Totally yeah, big appropriate. Time. Well, I want to talk a little bit about, um, and I, I, I feel bad that we didn't cover this earlier when we were talking about Pioneer Day and Black Lives Matter. But uh, I've gotten, I've had the opportunity to get to know Jeff Silvestrini, who is the mayor of the uh, city of Mill Creek you know, here in Utah. And uh, a national NPR story uh, w- came out recently and highlighted that the city of Mill Creek has uh, put up uh, new symbols uh, in the town to honor people of color. Uh, and they, the NPR story kind of juxtaposed this against the fact that there are monuments to Civil War heroes coming down around the country and mm-hmm. highlighting that the town of, of Mill Creek was putting them up. And uh, it then kind of goes beyond to say, well, okay, so you've done, you put up the these uh uh, monuments, if you will, to people. It was the the Chambers uh, who came to Utah from Mississippi after they were emancipated at the end of the Civil War. Uh, they converted to the uh, LDS faith while they were in Mississippi, and then they moved out here to uh, be in the you know headquarters of the church. Um, and they they scraped together their own money. They didn't receive support for others, uh, and uh, they came out here and built a farm in the Mill Creek community. And uh, you know their products were bought in the community, so it was really a nice recognition of these early African American uh, residents in in Mill Creek, and very cool. And then you know NPR kind of put Mayor Silvestrini on the spot, you know. So, okay, that's a nice symbolic gesture. What are you really doing? And and uh, Silvestrini talked about some of the other programs they're doing, including a program to make sure that uh, disadvantaged kids get uh, quality education and um, and take care of things. But and then they're also looking at uh, you know at, at policing in Mill Creek as well. So you know, it's cool, cool stuff to see. That happening. So, well, let's bring it full circle since we're here. Why not? So, also back on Pioneer Day type stuff, I think this is an area worth exploring. So, a uh, Native American teacher 
envisions a pioneer day that celebrates all Utahns. And what they mean by this, of course, is the fact that Pioneer Day is a celebration of when Brigham Young and the people, you know, arrived in Emigration Canyon and settled Utah, right? And they and and the Latter-day Saints proliferated all around the Intermountain West. And while in many cases they live side by side with some of the Native American tribes, there's still the fact that's true that the Native American tribes and their were eventually subsumed, you know, into mm. uh, the greater development of Utah. And so I don't think this is coming from a, an angry place by any means, but but there is Singer, this man, James Singer, is thinking about his identities. He's a member of the church. He's also Navajo. Mm-hmm. And he just feels like it's, we talk about these heroic settlers, but to me, these are people who eventually drove my, <laughs> drove out my ancestors, more or yeah. less. Why can't we have a pioneer day that might still recognize the the development of Utah in the traditional context, but also recognize the substantial Indian civilization and culture that already existed there. Right. Yeah. And it was that, that culture, the people, you know, were severely damaged. Um, and you know, it, it's horrible to think about these terms, but you know, this was the little part my personal ancestors played in what some people call genocide. Right, ninety percent. The, the 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 population of Native Americans declined uh, by ninety percent after Christopher Columbus arrived. Uh, it, it's it's a scary, scary thought to 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 weigh and to to ponder our role in that. Our people, our role in that, and especially mine, right? Because all my ancestors came to Utah as pioneers. A hundred percent, all of them. And so these are my people uh, that he's talking about. And, and interestingly, that James Courage Singer is the last Democrat to run for the congressional seat in the third district. I know James Courage Singer. And, you know, so I've talked to him about some of these very issues. And it is, it's heavy stuff uh, trying to figure out how to celebrate Pioneer Day in a way that's more respectful to the native communities. Sorry, I, I hope I didn't steal your thunder. No, you're good. I, I, should have, I should have let you just do this article. No, no, no. You have more inside <laughs> inside insights on this one. No, but uh, it, it really, I, I've, I've been spending much more time uh, speaking with, talking to, and, and being among the uh, Navajo people, especially, uh, in part inspired by James uh, and his work. And... Uh, it is kind of a trick. It is kind of a trick. And uh, uh, interestingly, the in the first dis- first congressional district, the Democratic nominee there is uh, a Shoshone Indian uh, or Native American, uh, and he he's a Shoshone elder and is uh, an important leader in the Shoshone Nation. Hmm. So, uh, and, and it's worth remembering that this isn't even like this isn't a. Uh... A fringe belief. I mean, they've got a lot of quotes here from Marlon K. Jensen, former member of the 70. He was the church historian for a long time. Some of these are quotes from 10 years ago. But back then, Elder Jensen, representing the church, talked about how, yes, of course, these there was already a significant culture and civilization here when they arrived. Productive land was scarce. You know, Utah is, that part of it is along the Great Basin, and it required a lot of man-made structures like irrigation, canals, all sorts of things to make it livable. And the, so with not as much productive land available, that meant displacement for others. So it's it's yeah. good to be reminded that you have someone from the church acknowledging that like, yeah, this people got pushed out of the way so that the Latter-day Saints could have their land. Yeah, James, um, James gave me a reading assignment a few months ago, and I'm just getting around to it. I'm reading this indigenous people's history of, of the Americas. And one of the things that just really caught me off guard uh, – was that we tell ourselves what I think is really maybe a bit myth- mythical, uh, that, that the settlers in Utah, the, the Mormon pioneers, um, somehow invented irrigation. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the Native Americans uh, lived in many places throughout the Americas where the water wasn't where the people were. So they had to irrigate. So they'd, they'd been irrigating for probably 2,000 years before the pioneers in Utah started irrigating crops here in Utah. So 
I also love the inter- singer's interesting anecdote about the famous story of the seagulls, right? I mean, you know, the, the seagull is the state bird of Utah because of the miracle of the gulls when the, the, the crops were going to be destroyed by pests and seagulls descended and ate them all. I love that all he says is like, why were they worried? They could have just eaten the crickets or the seagulls. Like, why was this a concern? Who cares about the crops? Just eat the crickets, which I think speaks a lot to just a different mindset in terms of, you know, living off the land and what do we eat and what don't we eat culturally. But I thought that was a pretty, pretty clever insight. But, you know, our, our, you know, some of the stories we've been telling ourselves for generations about Native Americans are really intended in subtle ways to uh, diminish uh, our Native American people. Uh, and, you know, the, the idea of them as savage or, or in some way unrefined and unsophisticated when, in fact, they had built extensive roadways from, you know, Central America all the way up to the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the observations of early European settlers of the Native Americans who had very little disease among them uh, was that they, that how often the Native Americans bathed. Some, you know, someone wrote in a journal, the Native Americans get up every day, even in the winter, and bathe before they get dressed. <laughs> and I find myself just shaking my head, right? Because the Europeans weren't doing that. Our ancestors weren't bathing every day, but the Native Americans were. Uh, and so, yeah, was there a reason that they didn't have as much disease uh, here in the new world? You know, anyway, That's interesting. Th- th- there is a whole reframing we need to be doing personally. And it-, it requires not just introspection, but some study for us to begin to appreciate that so much of what we think we know is wrong or misconstrued. And some of it intentionally so, right? The, you know, the... We've heard many times, right? The victor gets to tell the right the history, and right. Uh, so we have to remember that the history we read is, after all, biased, uh, and we've got to rediscover, I think, uh, the truth. Or for for most of us, for white folks like me, I have to discover the truth. We do. It's true. As as one who lives in Virginia and quickly came to understand that the first European settlement, permanent settlement, was J- in the North America was Jamestown, not Plymouth. You ask yourself, well, why? I remember I asked a park ranger at Jamestown. I was like, why do all the textbooks say you know the Pilgrims? Plymouth was the first thing. He he said the textbook industry was centered in Massachusetts. Oh. That was. That was his actual explanation. I was yeah. like, "You're just messing around." I was like, "No, they like print like the curriculum was developed in Massachusetts, and that's just why we hear that narrative." Because Jamestown came many, many years before yeah. that. But anyway, like 20, 25 years. Yeah, yeah. Lots of digressions here, but that's all fine and good. Everybody, we're going to call it a show. This has been good times. Uh, we hope you will join us every week uh, for news or guests. Who knows what what we'll have week to week? Right? It's all of big fun mystery and you get to be along for the roller coaster. Uh, we hope you'll support us on patreon.com slash this week in Mormons, where you can pledge a dollar or two a month just to help us out, help us keep this going. You know, it'd be good times. Please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. And please join us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, subscribe to the show if you haven't done so already. And you tell two friends and they'll tell two friends and that's how you build your downstream. Please do that for us. That would be most excellent. It's called us. a downline. We need to build our downline. I don't know what it's, I don't know what it's called. Uh, you haven't spent enough time in Utah, so let me- No, I haven't. I went, for you. I went to college there, then I got out of Dodge. That, <laughs> yeah. was, that was it. Um, yeah. I love you, Utah. Don't worry. Don't, Utah, I love you enough that if you, some reason someone had a good job for me there, I'd go there. It'd be okay. Yeah. I don't know what job that would be given the line of work I do, but if you have one, you let me know. You just come to Utah and build your downline, Jeff. Just come to Utah and build your downline. There you go. You'll you'll find just towers of Tupperware in my garage. Anyway, Devin, thanks for being here, man. Good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege, Jeff. You're the world's greatest show host. Well, that's not exactly true because the amazing race still exists and Phil Kagan is the greatest in the world. But thank you. I will take (laughs) Everyone go, if you want, if you're so inclined, this man could be your representative to Congress. I'm not telling you how to vote one way or the other, but there you go. There's Devin. Thank you. We look forward to further updates from the campaign. Visit DevonThorpe.com to find out if I am, wink, wink, uh, the guy for you. 
I thought you were going to say visit Devonthorpe to find out if I won. <laughs> Go to my website to find out how I did. Anyway. Uh, sure we'll put it there too. Folks, we love you all. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. Until then, be well, be holy, and be happy.